So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And let me say something about this text. So at this point in John's gospel, in this narrative, John turns a corner. Now John's gospel is an apologetic gospel. John is basically, as an apostle, he's working as an apologist. And this is not too far removed from the other authors of the other three gospels. But John's is a bit more intentionally focused on the deity of Christ. So John is writing or has written an apologetic work for the purpose of arguing for the divine sonship. He's arguing for the divine sonship of Christ, his lordship, and Jesus as the redeemer. And he does this not only in words, not only in describing the person of Christ. That's what we've seen in John chapter 1. In John's prologue, John is talking about Jesus. He's talking about the person of Christ. He says there's one coming whose sandal I'm not even fit or unworthy to remove from his feet. He's using this language to show the superlative nature of Jesus. And so now we enter into chapter 2, and John does something a bit different. He lets the work of Christ speak for itself. So no longer is he advocating for. He is advocating and sharing this story, but he realizes, just as you and I should realize, that we don't have to defend Christ you know, the reality of, of, of the person of Christ is not contingent upon our ability to articulate him, but his works speak for themselves. And this is the corner that we've turned in John chapter 2. And what better place, what better context for John to turn this corner than at a wedding? And this is where we are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly share a synopsis with you of what the wedding is. And then we're going to go back or, or uh, share a synopsis with you of the context of this wedding at Cana. Then we're going to go back to the top. We're going to walk through and show you things that most likely you may have overlooked if you've read uh, ahead of time or as you just hear me walking through this. So I won't explain too much about it, but I'll be brief. So this wedding took place in Cana. Cana was a small place. It was kind of a suburb almost of Galilee. Galilee presumably had around 500 people. Cana was much smaller than Galilee. And Jesus, his disciples, and his mother Mary and other people were invited to this wedding. I don't know how you feel about weddings. I don't know how you feel about attending weddings. Some people just love them. Some people just don't really care to be at them. But they go because they want to support folks and not seem like a jerk for not going, right? So I don't know where you are in weddings. Jesus was invited to this wedding. His disciples were invited to this wedding, and so they came. Mary invited to the wedding, so she came this wedding at Cana. It's been argued that Cana may have had a few dozen people. I mean, it was a little bitty blip of a town. I mean, really, literally, you blink, you miss it kind of a thing, right? So little bitty town, small wedding venue, small wedding party, but a party nonetheless, so here's this party at Cana. People are there. Festivities are rolling. Fun time. And then something happens. The wine runs out. Now we'll talk about why that's significant in a minute. But the wine runs out. Major party foul. This happens. Kind of puts things to a halt. It says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was there with his disciples. And the wine ran out. And this is how Mary responds to the wine running out. She comes to Jesus and she says, the wine has run out. 
And when you read the text, it's like she's expecting him to respond to this. She's expecting him to do something. The text doesn't clearly say what it is she's expecting him to do, but we see based on the verbiage of the text that she's wanting him to do something about it. Jesus, the wine has run out, and he looks at her and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I don't know where you come from, especially on this glorious Mother's Day, but if this boy came to his mama and said, mother, what does this have to do with me? Son, I want you to take out the trash. Mother, what does this have to do with me? I would then pick my teeth up out of the trash, put them in my pocket, and then carry the trash like a whipped dog to the trash can, right? So that kind of language didn't fly. But that would be disrespectful. We know that Jesus isn't being disrespectful, so what in the world does he mean when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? This is his mother. He says, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, for my time has not yet come. So you need to tuck that away because this is a phrase that is turned throughout the gospel of John. He says it over and over and over again. When people are trying to kill him, they're trying to stone him. He says he, he retreated, he secluded to another place because his time had not yet come. What time are they referring to? Well, we'll see in a minute. And then Mary, after Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? for my time has not yet come, she calls the servants and she says, servants, I want you to come here. I want you to look at Jesus, listen to Jesus, and do whatever he says. So Jesus says, hey, there's six empty jars for the Jewish ceremonial washing of hands, the purification ceremony. There's six jars over there. The wine didn't come from the jars, mind you. The wine came from wineskins. The wineskins were empty, but Jesus doesn't say, hey, notice that the wineskins are empty. Bring me the wineskins, and I'll fill them. He says, no, I want you to notice there's six stone jars meant for the Jewish, Jewish ceremonial washing of hands, this purification rite that they had. He says, I want you to take them because they're empty, and I want you to fill those up with water. Fill them up with water. Well, then the master of ceremonies came because typically at a wedding like this, you would have someone who was like the party planner or the master of ceremonies. So this person would come and they would, they took the wine, now wine, they took the wine and they brought it to the groom. And they said, look, why have you reserved this good wine for the end of the party? Because customarily what would happen is people would be drinking, making merriment, all these great things would be happening. They would have wine. And the idea was not to be drunk. This wine was very much fermented, make no doubt about that. But the idea was not to get drunk at all. They were very strict about that. It happened. But this, these, wasn't, these weren't the people that were like looking to get plastered, okay? So they're drinking. They're having a good time. They're enjoying the wine. And then it runs out. Jesus fills these six pots with wine. The the master of ceremonies comes, he takes the wine, and he brings it to the groom, and he says, why? Why have you been holding out on us? This was a major deal, because what you would typically do is you would take the good wine, and you would serve it to people. They would be drinking, you know, and they would drink enough, not to be plastered, but they would drink enough usually, so that when you served a little bit worse wine later, they wouldn't know the difference. It makes sense. Save your good wine, save your expensive wine for the next go-round, for the next party. The master of ceremonies couldn't figure this out. So he's thinking, why in the world are you serving the good wine for last? They, they can't really enjoy it because they've, they've, they've had so much wine that it's kind of blurred in their palate now. We, they can't really experience, they can't enjoy, allow me this, the notes in the wine, right? 
those of you that know I'm a coffee nut know that I like the notes in good coffee. So there's notes in good wine. He says, you can't identify those things. What is the purpose, man? You've totally squandered this good wine. Why are you doing that? And he couldn't figure it out. The groom couldn't figure it out. The groom's like, man, that wasn't my wine. And so it says later that Jesus did these things so that he might reveal his glory and the disciples believed. So there's your story. Pretty quick, pretty easy synopsis. You walk away right now, you've taken away what? You've taken away the fact that Jesus has shown his deity, right? And that's great. And if you walk away with that, you're absolutely correct. But that is just scratching the surface of what John is showing us in this small little context, this small little event that is a first century Jewish wedding that was very common, and Jesus turns water to wine. He's showing us something great. I don't know if you've ever, I'm not really into art, but I know something that is uh, popular among artists or, or those who would do sculptures or something like that is they will take multiple images and if you look at it, and they, and I mean physical three-dimensional things, and they would stack them in different places. And if you're looking at it from the side, you just see what seems to be a hodgepodge of things, garbage mostly. But then if you orient yourself the right way and you get a certain perspective, you see a face or you see some kind of mural. And it's just junk that has been placed together and the coloring of the junk that was there is, is, is intentional to, you know, be a part of a mustache, or I think I saw one, one once upon a time of, of, of Edgar Allan Poe. And so you look at the side, and you're like, I can't tell what that is. It just looks like, you know, you got different lanes divided by a bunch of garbage, ranging from a big, wide area to this little fine point. And you look in front of it, and it's the face of a human being. You know, so, but if you just pass by... You don't catch everything. You understand that it's art. You understand that it's special. But when you start reorienting yourself to the image or to the art, you start to appreciate it more. You see more that's there. And this is the same way we're going to approach this text. If you just read it and you say, you know what, this is a great thing that's happened. Jesus is at a party. He's at a wedding. All these great things are happening. Wine runs out. You know, he's the son of God. It's no thing for him to change the water to wine. So he does it. This is the first of his seven signs, the Bible says. And you walk away, you go home, you say, man, Jesus is awesome, he's powerful, he truly is the son of God. And I would say, Lily Faith should applaud you. This is great. This is what you want to know. But there's so much more to this text. So let's go back to the beginning and let's start walking through. And I want to show you some things that stand out as teachable items in this text. And then we'll bring it to an application towards the end. So it starts and it says, on the third day, I'll save that for later. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So let me share with you a little bit about weddings, right? Most of you in this room have been through a wedding. You've been through wedding planning. Now, maybe you were directly or indirectly involved with wedding planning. Some of you gentlemen here might have been like me, and I just did whatever my wife said was going to happen. I showed up, and I wore the right outfit, and I said the right words, and thus were married. That was my involvement. I think at one time I asked if we could have some dogs carry rings down the aisle or something. I was joking, but I got that same face. So, uh, so you know, I knew right then have nothing to do with it. And let me just give you a hint, you know, uh, for, for the guys that aren't married in here and will be married one day, if you just throw out some kind of asinine comment like that in planning the wedding, your wife or wife-to-be is sure to say, you just have nothing to do with it. And you say, oh, shucks, and sit down and enjoy your time, you know play a game or something until you get married. So 
Jewish weddings were a special type of event. Now, the marriage actually took place a year before the wedding. So the engagement time worked differently than engagements work for us. You know, if we get engaged to one another, when I was engaged to my wife, that was not a legally binding covenant before God. All right? It was not. It was, hey, I want to be with you. You want to be with me. Let's plan to be together. Let's plan to make it official. I'm saying I'm committed to you. And you're saying you're committed to me. But that's a difference from the day that I'm actually going through my vows and making my covenant before God and before people. So in the first century wedding process, before the wedding, there was the betrothal. And it was the same thing. I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. But the difference is this is a legally binding contract. In order to get out of an engagement, you had to divorce one another. You had to go through a legal process of getting a writ of divorcement to issue to one another so that you can legally separate just in the same way that you were legally bound into a covenant together. Case in point, Joseph and Mary, right? Joseph and Mary were married. Now, during this year period, all right, during this year that they were betrothed and married, but it wasn't finalized because the final, the, the final act is the wedding and then the consummation of things. And let me just say, it's quite remarkable that Jesus chooses to reveal himself in this way at a marriage because the Bible began with a marriage. It began with a covenantal union between Adam and Eve. And then you see the redemptive story, which is about a marriage between Christ and his bride. And here's where he really launches into this, at this wedding, which we'll see in a moment. And then the end of all things talks about the consummation of all things because our marriage is not yet finalized between us, the church, and between Jesus Jesus will one day, at the end of all things, he will consummate the marriage. He will make it definitively official. Now, it's definitive now. It's not going to change, but there's a process. Just like your salvation is a work in progress. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will finally, eventually, and definitively be saved. Nothing's going to take you away from God. Nothing's going to take you from his hand. But there is a process to your salvation, just like there's a process to our marriage before God, and it ends in the consummation of all things. So people were betrothed, and during that time, the husband-to-be, or the husband, but the husband would prove his worth to the family of his bride. During that time, he might be adding an addition to a house, because they would typically live in houses together. Or he might build himself a little house on a little plot of land that he has, showing that I can take care of her. Now, weddings were kind of a big deal. Marriages were kind of a big deal. But not in the way that you would think all the time, because a marriage was more utilitarian than anything else, which, by the way, let me give you some pastoral wisdom, gentlemen. Never look at your wife and say, this union that we have is utilitarian. That's kind of a means to an end. It suited me. It suits you. One might say, hey, Alan, you make no kind of money, and your wife's a nurse, and she's your sugar mama, which my wife says that about herself to me all the time. That's not why I got into this union with my wife. But this is how it was then. A family and another family would say, hey, this is a good thing for our families. This is going to be a good thing, so you know what? You're going to get hooked up with this person. You're going to be in this betrothal period for about a year. He's going to prove himself that we're going to have this week-long wedding festivity. And then you're going to be married. Isn't that great? Ah, forget love, forget attraction. This is utilitarian. 
This is a means to an end. This is by necessity. This is so that you women who were a second-class citizen, so you can be protected. So marriages were a little bit differently, a little bit different. Customarily, the groom would pay for a what's called a bride price or a dowry for his wife-to-be. He would pay for her. And it sounds icky, but I want you to think about what it pictures. I want you to think about the fact that Jesus, the groom, paid the ultimate price for his bride, and that's what it's meant to show, okay? So don't let the beauty of the bride price, the dowry, don't let it be robbed by a a, a humanistic or a secularist approach to the scriptures. This is good. This is good. So a bride price is paid. Marriages were (laughs) utilitarian. They were considerably different than what we experience in a 21st century wedding. These weddings would last a week or longer. If you're the type that loves to go to weddings, this this is just for you. They would last a week or longer. The bridegroom would go to his betrothed father's house to fetch her. I know that sounds icky too, right? He would go and fetch her, right? He would go and get his bride. The bride would be carried in a litter, which is like a horse carriage carried by men instead of, uh, instead of horses. So you have these rods that go through on either side of the carriage, and you have four men that are, that are carrying her. So it was kind of a spectacle, kind of a parade. She would be carried to the place, usually, if I understand this right, to the groom's family's house where the wedding venue would be. As the bride entered, people would sing songs from the Song of Songs. I don't know if you've ever read the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, but there's some interesting verbiage there, and I don't know which lyrics or lines they picked, but they would sing Scripture over this bride. Once the bride reached the bridegroom's house, the bridegroom's parents would bestow a traditional blessing over the couple. This would all be followed by games, dancing, wine, festivities, and fun. But the bride was to be separate from the games, the festivities, and the fun. She would be in a place by herself. But the groom would be the one that's experiencing all these things. I've heard it said, I've heard it taught that customarily the wedding, a Jewish wedding in the first century was more about the groom than it was about the bride. And that makes sense to me. Because our marriage to Jesus is not about us. It's about our groom. The bride would be in a separate place while all of these things were going on. She would be preparing herself to be finally and definitively connected with her groom through the consummation of their marriage. So there was this wedding in Cana and Galilee. And this is what's happening. Big festivity. I wanted to paint that picture. I wanted to take a little bit of time to paint that picture. So then we move forward. So there's this wedding happening. There's all these fun things. The bride's being brought in on a litter and all this great stuff. They're rejoicing. They're celebrating. It's a party. It's fun. And then the fun stops. Maybe the music stops. Maybe the dancing stops. Maybe all the celebrations come to a halt because the wine had run out. Major party foul. Let me explain a party foul. If I have a Super Bowl party at my house and I say, y'all come to the Super Bowl party, it's going to be the best ever. And I have food for you. I have chicken wings. I have all these great things. Maybe Caroline makes some potato soup. We have a great, great, great fun time. But you know what I don't provide? I don't provide a viewing of the Super Bowl. That, my friends, is a party foul. 
Elizabeth Snipe just celebrated graduating from North Greenville University, and she had a small gathering of people that came to her house to celebrate her accomplishment. Now, what if I would have shown up in this celebration of her accomplishment of graduating college and said, man, congratulations, man, life is about to get horrible for you. You're about to start adulting, and let me tell you, you would rather die. I mean, I blow the doors wide open. Debbie Downer, you know, super negative, super pessimistic. Everybody's celebrating. Good job, good job. I've done it. I graduated long before you, and college is easier now than it was then. That is not the way to enter a party. That is not the way to go to a celebratory event and say, let me suck the fun out of the room with my pessimism and negativity. I didn't do that because that would be a party foul. Or if I invited you for a barbecue and all we had was vegan entrees. Party foul. Probably sinful. The wine ran out. The wine running out was much more than just an inconvenience, though. You walk away from this text if you just do a a light perusal of the text and you say, well, the wine ran out and that kind of wasn't cool. But it provided an opportunity for Jesus to display his deity and that's great. But more's happening than that. This is super significant that the wine runs out. Wine is a staple in Jewish weddings. It was the responsibility of the groom to provide adequate or sufficient amounts of wine to carry people through to the end of the party so they would have beverages. This was a major, major, major issue. More than just an inconvenience, more than just a party foul. The wine running out, listen to this, was representative of something much, much deeper. There is an association with wine throughout the Bible as it's connected with joy and with gladness. And I don't mean drunkenness. I don't mean that. In the scriptures, in the Psalms, and in Judges, Psalm 104 says, wine, it makes It makes men glad. In Judges, it said, it cheers God and men. And it's not just because wine is this great thing, but what Jesus is doing, or what God is doing from the very beginning, is he's using wine as a theme. And we don't see it at first. He's using this wine as a theme to finally get to a place where the wine represents what? the blood of Christ. So I'm giving you a little bit of a curtain pullback so that you can have that and walk back and apply it right here. The wine running out, which the wine ultimately symbolizing the blood of Christ, the new covenant, true joy, true gladness, true hope. And when the wine runs out, what is actually happening for us to see is that Judaism leaves us empty. Religiosity never satisfies. Those that were pursuing the ways of Judaism, what we're seeing in this text is monumental. He's, we're seeing that it will be empty. There's no joy. There's no gladness in anything outside of Christ. That's what it means when the wine runs out. Even the future fulfillment of the kingdom of God will be characterized by what? An abundance of wine. Does that mean that we will spend eternity getting blitzed? No, 
That's not the point. The point is eternity will be filled with joy and with gladness because Jesus will never run out. The sufficient blood of Christ will never run out. That's the point of this text here. The wine running out was representative of the emptiness of Judaism. Judaism was a hollow shell. It left men searching for joy and gladness they could never find in anything but Jesus. So we begin to see that there is much more to the wedding story than meets the eye. John, again, the apologist, is showing us that our religiosity will leave us sad and empty over and over and over again. And he will soon show us that only Christ can supply our joy. So there's a wedding at Cana. The wine runs out. I'm struggling with my words today. Be patient. <laughs> There's a wedding at Cana. The wine runs out. Big deal. Mary comes to Jesus. What are we going to do? The wine is gone. And Mary's not thinking, oh, the representation of the blood of Christ is gone. How will these people know? That's not it. She was very practical in her concern. She's concerned that, my goodness, this party is about to get really awkward because there's no wine. We might have a mutiny on our hands here. Jesus, do something about this. Now, here's what's interesting. We have to ask the question, why, what were Mary's motives in coming to Christ? Because there's a couple of different views about this. Because it strains the transaction. Jesus, the wine is out, and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? For my time has not yet come. Why does he speak in that kind of language? Why does he reference his death just because there's no wine? He said, my, my time had not yet come. Mary approached Jesus for one of a few reasons. One idea is that she would have been well aware of the inevitable awkwardness of running out of wine, and she's simply stating the obvious. She's just in a tizzy. What are we going to do? There's no wine. Maybe not expecting Jesus to do anything, I disagree with that option because Jesus' response is as though he was picking up on the fact that she did want him to do something about it. So that's one option. Another option is that she knew that Jesus was a problem solver. I mean, my goodness. You carried the Son of God in your womb. You were told by the angel that he's different, that he's special. Mary absolutely knew. I will answer the great Christmas song by Mark Lowry that I know. The answer is yes. She knew that he was the son of God. She didn't know that he would do certain things, but she knew, Mary knew who Jesus was and what he was capable of. So I don't think she was just in a tizzy. I don't think that, and I don't think that she was just looking at him as a problem solver. Maybe Jesus was younger and in, in, he was younger, but maybe during his youth, maybe there were some situations that came up, and Jesus, being the Son of God, was like, hey, I got an idea. And Mary's like, well, I guess we'll listen to you. You're the Son of God. And I don't think that was the case. I don't think it was just that Jesus was a problem solver. Again, I don't believe that because of the way he responds, because he references his death. You see, it's not miraculous for Jesus to say, you know what, let's go to the Quickie Mart and let's just get some more wine, okay? Or let's borrow it from this other house. They got a wedding coming up, we'll, we'll pay them back before the wedding happens. Let's just borrow something. That would have been a solving of the problem. But I don't think that was it because why would he reference his death? It doesn't show his deity for him just to say, let's just go on down the road and let's borrow some wine or let's do that. 
Wine was abundant there. It was commonplace for people to have wine. So why didn't he just go to the house next door or down the street? Why didn't he just do that? I don't think he was just approached because he was a problem solver. I think the third option is the way to go, and I think it's this. She knew that Jesus, as the Son of God, could perform a miracle. I think she's asking for a miracle. I think she wants him to do something. She is beside herself worried about where this may go. And there's some theologians that argue that she was a part of the master of ceremonies, that she was helping the main guy who was the party planner. There's no evidence for that, that I see or that I've heard. It's speculation. But I think she absolutely is banking on the fact that he is who he is. And that if anybody can do anything about this problem, it's Jesus So now that we've got that settled, we have to settle the issue of why he responded to her in the way that he did. Jesus, come and take care of this. Woman, what does this have to do with me? It sounds harsh. It sounds like a rebuke, which some might say it is a rebuke. Here's what I understand. I think when he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? I think his words to Mary had nothing to do with disrespect, but I think it had everything to do with establishing a degree of separation to clarify the distinction between doing her will and doing the will of God. I think this is where he's turning the corner. This is the only thing in my mind that makes sense or that I found that could possibly make sense. Because Jesus performs the miracle anyway. And so how do I connect those? How do I reconcile the fact that he says, woman, why are you coming to me? What does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And yet he does the miracle. And I found no explanation for this kind of exchange. And the only thing I can come up with, and this is my opinion. I haven't found this in the text. This is my opinion. And you take it and you think about it. I think... I do know this. I do know that his response to her as a woman was not a culturally normative word that you would say to a mother. It wasn't that. It was clear that he was saying, listen, for 30 years I've been here and I've been subservient to you, my mother whom I love. I've been faithful. I've been a faithful son. But because his ministry is about to blow the doors wide open, I think he's making it very clear now Now you don't view me as a son. Now you see me as the son of God. Now you see me as the God-man in which is full deity and fully man. I think that's what's happening here. This was not derogatory. It wasn't disrespectful. And he performs this miracle. It's because he's made it clear that he's doing the Father's will. That's what he's here to do. That's my argument. So, we move on in the story. Mary's asking him to do something. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Showing a distinction, showing a separation. I'm the son of God. Things are going to change now. We've turned a corner. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus. The next three years or so will be spent showing himself as the divine son. Because he has not done this up to this point. But now he's going to do it. According to the Father's will, not his mother's will, but according to the Father's will, I think is why he does this. And that explains the weirdness in the response. 
So what does he notice? He noticed that there's these jars over here, and he says, all right, take these jars, and I want you to fill these jars with water. And these jars were designed or specified for or to the rite of purification, this ceremonial washing of hands. Now, you've read about this before in the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Holding to the tradition of elders. If you've ever heard that term, that's what it is. If you've ever heard someone say the tradition of men or the tradition of elders, one of those is the ceremonial act or rite of purification. The Jews do this to this day. So it says, and when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining, uh, and, 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 and dining stuff. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, clinging to the traditions of men. Judaism calls for the washing of hands first thing in the morning. After they go to the bathroom, they call for the washing of hands after intercourse. They call for the washing of hands all throughout the day. If you walk through, uh, if you walk through any Jewish place, or I should say, if you walk through Israel and places like that, you'll notice that there are these uh, water, they look like water fountains, and you'll see Jews coming up, rabbis and all these teachers, they'll come up, and they're always washing their hands. Because they believe there's some purification that takes place. It washes away whatever defilement they have. And these are from Jewish sources. They believe that when they go to sleep, that the Spirit of God, the good spirit, is removed from their body. And their body is exposed to a dark spirit. And the dark spirit comes and resides in their body. And then when it's time to wake up, the dark spirit leaves and the good spirit comes and resides in their body. So they get up and they have to wash themselves because there was an evil spirit on them or in them while they were asleep. And they would do this all throughout the day. And what's interesting is Jesus, knowing this custom, Jesus knowing this rite of purification of the Jews, knowing this, he points not to the wineskins. He doesn't say, let's refill the wineskins. He points to these jars. And the jars were empty. The jars being empty only further affirms the fact that pursuit of any man-made religion of any false god or idol or anything will leave you without joy without gladness and will leave you empty that's what the emptiness of these purification jars don't you find it interesting that the thing that they thought would bring purification of sins would bring purification was not there it was not available i think that's why in this text it's empty so Jesus says, take these empty jars, there's six of them, and combined they hold about 120 to 150 gallons. By the way, that's more wine than that small wedding party could consume in a long time. That's a lot of wine. And then you start asking yourself, well, if you had the wineskins, which was almost maybe enough, why does the pendulum swift all the way the other way and Jesus fills up this huge pot with wine. They can't consume all that. The idea is not for them to consume all of that. The idea is what it pictures for us. And what is that? It pictures this. What was in 
the pots was wine. That had become wine because Jesus miraculously turned water into wine. And it says that Jesus told them to fill it, and they filled it to the brim. And don't overlook language in the Bible. Don't overlook subtle nuances that have monumental meanings. It is not by happenstance that it was filled to the brim. It was virtually overflowing. So you have an overflowing pot that was usually used for a ritualistic purification that didn't actually purify anything spiritually. It was vain. It was empty. No joy, no gladness, no actual cleansing took place so you have a pot like that that is filled up with water and then turned into wine that is filled to the brim why because if wine is representative of the blood of christ the image that we're to be seeing in this small little unassuming narrative is that the blood of jesus is more than efficient for all who would believe. More than sufficient. More satisfying than you could ever imagine. That is the image here. And who would have thought that looking at stone pots would be representative of the work of Christ or representative of the gospel. But yet that's what's happening. That's why I use this illustration at the beginning of art. And sometimes you don't see art for what it is. You don't see the actual work behind it because you're at the wrong vantage point. But when you reorient yourself and see it differently, you start to understand things that you would not have otherwise understood. And that's how this text works. Jesus doesn't tell the servants to fill the wineskins with wine. He tells them to fill the six jars with water, and then he turns it into wine. Wine doesn't just mean joy and gladness, but it's symbolic of something else. It represents the blood of Christ, which will be poured out, establishing a new covenant and the key ingredient for rescuing people from the emptiness that consumes them. Jesus filled the jars with more than they could consume. The blood of Jesus, i.e. the gospel of Christ, is such that it would always satisfy. His work is sufficient enough that we would never thirst again, ever. Do you not remember the encounter he had with the woman at the well? Well, this woman goes to this well in the middle of day because she was an outcast because of her sins. And Jesus starts telling her about how good living water is. And she says, where can I find this? Because she has to keep coming to this well. She has to keep drawing from this well, and it never satisfies. And we're the same way. We keep going to a wrong well looking for things to satisfy us. We want entertainment. We want relationships. And we're looking for those things to satisfy. We want a better social experience. We want to have the happy life that all the Facebook people are telling you that they have when they post every day. We want those things and we look for those things. We seek, we seek that kind of fulfillment in motherhood and in fatherhood. But Jesus is saying those things will inevitably leave you empty because a good thing that is made into a God thing is a bad thing. He's saying the only thing that will satisfy you is the gospel. His work is sufficient enough that we would never thirst again. That's the reality behind the curtain of filling the jars. So Jesus filled. He filled those jars with not just any wine, but he filled it with a very specific wine. A wine that was of such taste, of such flavor, that even this master of ceremonies, even this wedding planner, who has probably tasted a lot of wine, and knows good wine versus bad wine. He obviously does. 
And he comes and he says, what is this? He goes to the groom. He says, what in the world are you serving? This is a flavor explosion. I can't, I've never had something like this. And again, if you're just walking away and you say, well, he made it not just wine. He pulled a miracle off and it wasn't just a miracle. He added a, a nice little touch and made it actually quite tasty. There's more to it than meets the eye. There's more to this because who is responsible for the wine? The groom is responsible for the wine. And so when the wine ran out, what does that tell you about the groom? That he's not a perfect, well, let me say it like this, not a perfect groom compared to our groom. Whose wine, whose love, whose blood, whose covenant will never run out. Who's responsible for our joy and our gladness? Our groom. That's who's responsible. And unlike the groom here who dropped the ball, Christ will never drop the ball. And the wine that he provides, the love that he provides, the joy and the gladness that he provides is richer and deeper than any other joy or gladness that this world will offer us. That's the point. Again and again and again, this is the point. So it's not just about the divine sonship of Christ it's not just about his deity. It is about those things, but it's so much more. We walk away not with just the fact that Christ is God in the flesh, but we walk away with the fact that he is pointing to a better wine. He is pointing to a better marriage. He is pointing to a better covenant. He is pointing to all of these things so that you may have joy and that you may have gladness. And the scripture says he did these things as the first of his many signs. There are several signs throughout the book of John. There's seven, the first turning water into wine. Then he cleanses the temple, which we're going to see next week. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals the lame man. He feeds the multitude. He heals the blind man, and then he raises Lazarus. Seven is a biblical number. It's a number of completion. John, if you follow through the Bible, he uses numbers all the time to communicate deeper truths. Which brings us to the very first verse. And he said, on the third day. So here's John using another number. But I didn't want to start with it. Because it would have shown you all my cards. So we go back to this first one. And Jesus is setting something up that you and I wouldn't know if we were just looking at it for the first time. That they didn't know as they were there attending the party on the third day with him. But what Jesus is doing, he's setting up something monumental. He's foreshadowing Something that would change everything, and that's his resurrection. I am willing to guess that the majority of people, maybe, maybe in this room, that would read through that, may or may not have seen that. I didn't think that way. I didn't think that way, and I'm thinking, oh, it's a third day, it just happens to be a day. What a coincidence. Not a coincidence at all. Jesus is foreshadowing greater things. He's showing that what's going to happen is going to change everything. And on that third day, Jesus changed everything. Because he performed this miracle to reveal his glory. No longer was he looked at as just a carpenter or just Mary's son. Everything began to change because this guy had shown divinity. And it says the disciples believed. I think this text does, in fact, point to a better joy. It points to a more sufficient cleansing, a better cleansing, the blood of Christ as opposed to some ritualistic behavior 
or right. It points to a better marriage. It points to a better covenant because Jesus uses wine to establish his new covenant and says this is the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his shed blood that would initiate the gospel to be finalized by his resurrection on the third day. But I also believe this text demands that we look at ourselves and ask a few questions. And here's my final thoughts that I want you to walk away with because this is what I've had to walk away with. The first question I think you have to ask yourself is, do you functionally, in your practice, in your word, in your deeds, not in theory, but do you actually live this way? Do you functionally trust the cleansing power of the gospel or do you look for works to tip the scale so that you might earn righteousness and favor before God? We're not a works-based salvation-believing people, but I think functionally it's easy for us when we've sinned against God or when we're in the trenches and lower places, rather than resting with confidence that our righteousness is in Christ, rather than that, we want to earn some righteousness. We want to work a certain way so that we might be approved, and that completely discounts the atonement of Christ. In other words, does your repentance as a Christian serve as a means of reconciliation or as a means of righteousness. If your works as a Christian are a means to find righteousness rather than a means of God's or Christ's imputed righteousness, then you've misappropriated the cross because you have righteousness. That's the beauty of justification is that Jesus has substituted himself and he's declared you righteous before God. Your worst day doesn't even begin to tip the scale because Christ's righteousness has weighed it down definitively and this is great news you will go home and some of you will say something ugly to your spouse Rose, uh, Roseanne might slap a goat I don't know what's going to happen when we leave this place but your worst day doesn't even begin to move the scale down here where Christ's righteousness that covers you sits, it doesn't even move it. Now sin does not increase so that grace may abound, we know that, so we don't live in sin because we have righteousness. But we don't get overwhelmed or we don't get defeated by sin. We don't buy into being a slave to sin because of Christ's righteousness. We don't fear God as though he's going to you know, as though he hates us, as though he's going to cast us into hell because of Christ's righteousness. Now, the Bible does say don't fear the one who can kill you, but fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. But for the Christian, we don't have that fear. We don't have it because of Jesus. So does your repentance as a Christian serve as a means of reconciliation or as a means of righteousness? What do you lean on for the purification of your soul? Is it some ritual? Is it some rite? Is it some empty, vain process? Or do we rest with confidence on the work of Jesus? Mary went to Jesus when the, when the wine ran out. When there was no joy and when there was no gladness, she ran to Jesus. Where do you run when the wine runs out in your life? Where do you go when you don't feel like you have joy? Where do you go when you don't feel like you have gladness? Do you run to things or do you run to Jesus? I think that's what I have to ask myself and that's what I'm asking you to ask yourself. 
Jesus, our groom, will always be sufficient. In a story where the groom dropped the ball, where the groom wasn't able to supply the wine, which represents joy and gladness, to a degree that was sufficient enough for all the people, we have a groom that is contrary to this groom in the narrative. We have a groom that's not just human, but he's divine. And in his divinity, he shed his blood, and it absolutely and eternally satisfies. And that is what we learn from a story about a wedding, works and party fouls. That's what happens in this story. Let's pray together. Father, you've been gracious to us, and I pray that pray this word can resonate in our lives, Lord. I pray that it would have much bearing on us as we leave. I thank you for the weeks that I've had to just really consider the things that are in this text or things that I probably would have just missed had I only had a week to plan. So I'm thankful that by your providence, I've had these weeks where Austin took a couple of weeks to preach so that I could just think through these things. Lord, I pray that in my lack of eloquence and my lack of clarity, Lord, that you would bring clarity. Lord, I pray that you would use the foolish to confound the wise. And Father, that you would bring peace to our hearts and that you would bring perspective to our minds that we might rightly align ourselves with your scripture and the reality of what it teaches so that our perception changes, so that we can see Jesus and for all his glory as his aim, as his objective is to reveal his glory. May we see what the disciples saw in this text and may we boast in Jesus. In Christ's name. Amen.